0: We invite our children to be dismissed for their time and form of worship as we continue here by bowing in prayer. We pray, O God, that all of the pieces of worship might collectively or perhaps one element of it Reach us at that point where we are open and vulnerable to your wooing, transforming love. We come into this place each week and we sing the songs of faith and we pray the prayers and we hear the sermon and the anthem. But, O God, all is vain unless your spirit is among us. It is among us. Grant us openness to hear and receive you. Through Christ, amen. A mother mouse walked proudly with her little Mises, or whatever they are, behind. They were so darling, she thought, and she was so very proud of them as they walked across the kitchen floor until they came upon the cat. The little mice scampered behind their mother, and much to their surprise they heard their mother turn to the cat and say, Bow wow, bow wow, wow. And with that, the cat ran off. The mother turned to her children and said, Let this be a lesson to you of why it is so very important that you learn a second language. (laughs) The church needs to learn a second language. We have been prone as a people, to speak about Jesus and the cross with only one language. It's a fine language as far as it goes, although it's a little dated. And frankly, even though it's biblical, it can be easily misconstrued, misused. It is throughout our hymnody because we only speak often in one language. I will sing of my Redeemer with his blood He purchased me. On the cross, he sealed my pardon, paid the debt, and set me free. It's called substitutionary atonement. And it goes something like this. It says that a holy God, perfect and pure, cannot look down upon the unholiness of humanity. Therefore, there is this chasm between God and us. God cannot look upon our sin. And so Jesus comes along to serve as a substitute, to die in our place—sort of a stand-in, a, a stuntman, if you will—or to put it crassly, substitutionary atonement says something's broken, and someone's got to pay. As Walter said in the Big Lebowski, "Smokey, this isn't Nam. There are rules here. Someone has to pay. There's a debt." This substitutionary atonement language has worked for us for a long time. It computes for us. It appeals to our rules-focused, fair-minded way of seeing the world, those of us who go to church on Sunday, pay our bills, we don't cheat. This substitutionary atonement feels like quid pro quo, this for that an equal exchange or substitute of goods or services. And in it, God is utterly in control. God is not vulnerable in the least because the cross is a pre-planned transaction. And there are short-term pain, there is short-term pain, but look at the long-term gain. 20 years ago, I knew that this single way of speaking, only having one language about the cross, was a problem. Terry had a coworker named Susan, interested in things of faith, but confused. She wasn't raised in this, and the story didn't hang together for her. I remember vividly the day we met, and she said to me, Now let me get this straight. God made the world and made us and knew how we were constructed and knew full well that we would fail, that we would not be able to do and live perfectly. And yet, when we did fail, God was mad at us and needed to kill someone in order for all to be right. Do I have this right so far, she asked? And I'm kind of nervously saying, well, uh, uh, sorta. Uh, I mean, y- y- I don't know. <laughs> she said, "Well, and, and then, the as I've understood what you're saying, if I believe that Jesus was the substitute for my sins, then if I die when I go to, when I die, I'll go to heaven." Is is that essentially the story? Thinking Christians and. Non Christians detect that God surely works in a way deeper and more profound than this. They detect that God is not superficial or easily satisfied with a quick and easy analogy of substitution. It's a valid way of looking, but it's not the only way of looking, it's one language but we need the ability to speak in more than one language. Substitutionary atonement, when it becomes uh, our monolingual way of talking, tends to paint God much like the giant in this children's story, Jack and the Beanstalk. You remember the story? Fee, fi, fo, fum. I smell the blood of an Englishman. Be he live or be he dead, I'll grind his bones to make my bread. God needs some blood. And God made these rules, we're told. These rules about holiness and not looking on sin. God made these rules and God can't suspend these rules, apparently, can't alter these rules, can't violate these rules, so Jesus comes to die. And we think, well, that reminds me of the question we used to ask in college. Can God make a rock so big that even God can't lift it? I mean, can God create a rule that even God can't violate? Reminds me of the sequester they're talking about all over uh, Washington these days. The president and Congress make this rule and now they can't break it? God can't break a rule? That's not the God I've known. It's time to learn a second language. The other problem with this language alone is that it can let us off the hook. Let us off the hook. If Jesus paid it all and all to him I owe, then all I need to do is thank him, say yes to it, and simply wait until I die and go to heaven. Do you remember the movie some years ago called The Passion of Christ? Mel Gibson put out this movie. It was based entirely on the theory of substitutionary atonement. And so he began the movie by running a quotation from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah which said, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sins. In other words, someone has to die. And so there was the shedding of blood. Jesus was whipped and cut and punctured and nailed. There was lots and lots of blood. But what was missing from the movie... What was missing that for me feels so foundational is the why, the why of the gospel. Why did Jesus have to die? There was no framework in which to understand this great mystery. There were no miracles. There were no teachings. There were no parables. There was no Sermon on the Mount. There was no confrontations with the Pharisees so that non-Christians went away confused and Christians mainly went away stunned, maybe a little guilty, but assured that Jesus had died for me, even though we're unclear why did that help? This substitutionary atonement, while it has its points, works. A little too conveniently in our Western American framework that talks about me and mine, my salvation and my relationship with God. It doesn't do anything to call us about changing the structures and constructs that the world is dominated by today. It does nothing to challenge my own habits and our habits as a people, our assumptions and our fears. And I think deep down people know God is deeper than this. There's more to God. And so it's important for us to learn a second language. In the... Following chapter in Luke, from which we read today, we read a story of two men who were actually there in Jerusalem on the day that Jesus was crucified. They watched him suffer. They watched his violent death. And they were confused and disillusioned, even scandalized by it, because it didn't compute for them. They were followers of Jesus. But they didn't understand why he died. They were looking for some vindication. They were looking for some rescue. They were looking for the world to be rebooted in some way. And the cross looked to them like divine rejection, humiliation, and loss. They're so blinded by their disillusionment and disappointment that they're oblivious. They don't even see the risen Christ coming alongside them and walking on that road from Jerusalem to Emmaus. They begin to talk. They explain to Jesus what they've seen and what they've heard. They they explain to him how it is that they just can't fathom this. And Jesus responds, how slow you are. How foolish and slow to believe all that the prophets declared. Was it not necessary For the Messiah to suffer these things and then enter into glory. And the answer is, of course, yes, it was. Then Luke's right. Luke writes, beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, Jesus interprets to them the things about himself in all of the scriptures. He's teaching them a new language. He's helping them to see and interpret and tell this story in a different way using the prophets, Moses, and all of the prophets. We have them in our windows around us today. Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. We see Daniel. We see Moses. We see Amos and Hosea. We see all of these prophets of the Lord. And when we recall the stories of, of the prophets what we recall is their vivid descriptions of how this world has been so bastardized by human sin individual sin and corporate sin we we read it in the opening prayer of confession forgive us o lord for every evil desire every immoral act every unrighteous thought this bastardization of god's dream has left god with no recourse but to be upset to talk about the wrath of god as paul says it from the book of romans how does god act in the midst of anger we see it in the life of the prophets That when God's passion for justice and truth and holiness line up with human weakness and yet that modicum of courage that the prophets reveal, here it comes. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Sin's consequences are exposed. They're revealed And the sacred dream has an opportunity to break through once again. And then along comes Jesus. In the fullness of time, as Paul says to the Galatians, not with might and not with power, but with the fullness of love. And in his body, in his life, from the very beginning, from the birth narratives, we see him facing off. Against the forces of death and fear and greed. And his consistent response is one of love. He tells us unequivocally, this world we live in is messed up. Something is bad, wrong. Look at my life. Look at what's happening to me, he says to the women. Don't wait for me. Weep for yourselves because if they do this while the wood is green, while I'm here bearing love, what will happen when the wood is dry, when when I'm gone from this place? And so on the cross, his cruciform body embodies the heart of God. As they kill him, he says to them, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And in that moment, he brings together all the forces of evil and sin and fear and hatred and the forces of love and the Spirit of God. It's a kind of cosmic battle, but we see it in each and every one of our lives, and he dies. And the question is, were the two disciples on the road to Emmaus right? Did Jesus lose? Was his message invalidated? It depends on how you look at it. Who's looking at it? And when they look at it. In this second language substitution becomes something other than Jesus saying, I'll be your stand-in. He says, substitution, I will embody a substitute. I will be the ransom for the world in order to provide it, to provide you and the church for all time an alternate vision, a radical shift in our worldview that subverts how we might tend to think and act and feel and imposes upon it, God's way, exposing the evil, not with violence, but with love. Defeating it, disempowering it, showing us finally and fully that in the end, the love of God revealed in Jesus always wins. It's easy to forget it. In this world that we live in, on days other than Sunday, it's easy to forget it, my friends. It's easy in a world of power, from power lunches to power ties to power plays to power shifts to power grabs, it's easy to forget. It's especially easy to forget when we live in the world as the superpower of the world with power speech, power moves, power schools, even power churches. The why of the cross requires a second language to speak the love of God so that when our time comes to stand, like Jesus did before the pilots of power who menacingly ask us, what is truth, we'll know. Jesus said, If you abide in my word, you'll know the truth. The truth will make you free. This truth is carried out by Jesus' suffering love upon the cross. And we'll apply it in every way, in every place, in everything that we are, from the beginning of our lives to the end. We'll apply it in every place, in every system. We'll apply this love. We'll take the stories of slavery in Egypt and we'll bring them into the present. We'll see in our world how slavery still rules. We'll see the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and we'll bring it into our world. And we'll see how military and political and religious powers often misuse their power and wreak arrogant destruction. We'll see the exiles. We'll hear the stories from the Bible. But we'll bring it into the present and we'll know that surely God is alive and at work and it will win ultimately in these battles that we fight with exiles even today, and I think especially this morning, of young people all throughout the country of Morocco who have come from sub-Saharan Africa and find themselves stuck, nowhere forward, nowhere backwards, unable to stay where they are, and we take the story of Jesus and we speak God. And as we do, we'll develop an ear for this second language. And now when we sing our hymns of faith, we'll sing them not only in our first language, we'll sing them in our second language. So that when we sing, when I survey the wondrous cross, we can say, oh yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I need that cross to call me, to guide me, to shape me and invite me into the work of love. We'll sing the hymns about his hands and feet and sorrow and love flowing, mingling down. And we'll say, yes, I see it. And it changes me on the inside. We'll sing the hymn about Jesus, keep me near the cross. And we'll say, oh, please do. Because in it, your holy way is revealed and your victory, your winning in the end, is revealed in your self-giving love. We need a second language. We need a second language that will remind us, as Paul did long ago, to have this mind in us that was in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be held on to. But he emptied himself and took the form of a slave, and being found in human likeness, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And that's our strength. That's our language. Here's how Paul put it. When I am weak, then... Then I am strong. Let's pray together. God, for the gift of your son, Jesus, on the cross, we give you thanks. May new light be shed upon it, and may your church always seek to speak your language of love. Bless us as we do this work of love, as we move forward together as a community of faith. May we always be faithful to you. For it's in your holy name that we pray. Amen.